We are in our first ever series uh, called Gospel-Centered, and all, all that means is we're trying to be as open and upfront as, as possible as you explore what a, this church plant might mean for you and your family. We know there's a lot of great churches in this city, and, and we just believe that we need a lot more great churches. We want to saturate every neighborhood and every nation with the gospel, and so we've said, this is what the gospel is. It saves us, it shapes us, and it sends us. It's necessary for, for the salvation of the world. It's necessary for our faith to continue, and it's necessary to send us out. And so we've, we've covered some broad topics, and uh, whether it be uh, the gospel in general or what, what our gospel communities will look like or what, what the gospel says about your, your work and, and how uh, that matters to God, what the gospel says about how, what we do with our stuff and our finances, what the gospel says about um, our marriages we looked at last week. And, and this week we're going to look at what the gospel says about missions. Uh, but uh, just want to let you know in case you're like, well, so this is what the preaching's like every week. It's just kind of you pick a topic and go with it. Uh, that's not going to normally be the case. Normally we'll work through uh, a passage of the or, or a book of the Bible. So next month uh, after this, we'll start go back there. We'll, we'll start uh, the, the book of Philippians and we'll go verse by verse, passage by passage through that just to go deeper in one area. But for this, this series, we're trying to cover as many bases as possible and say, these nine weeks, we're going to continue to come back. In some way, shape, or form, every sermon that I ever give will come back to one of these nine weeks because we believe these are the core to our faith. So we're looking at what does it mean to be gospel-centered? And what does it mean to be fueled in our missions, that, that God has a heart for not just Parker, and he does, but for the nations. And it just means that the gospel uh, is, is going to saturate every neighborhood and every nation, and that God is inviting you and me to be play a part in that. That's, that's what's amazing about this. So with that, would you turn to uh, Psalm 67? Psalm 67, I'll read it, and then... Uh, Pray again with us and ask God to uh, do his work that only he can do in us. So Psalm 67, if you have an iPhone or something like that, turn, turn it on to I, Psalm 67. I'll read the whole psalm, and as I do so, we ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let, all, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its in increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. So let's pray. God, again, we come before you once again, just even if it's just one hour or two hours a week that we say we need to be reminded of the gospel. Uh, we need to set our, our, the course of our life back on you. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd come and do that. Jesus, we acknowledge and, and believe that you said apart from you, we can do nothing. And so um, we pray that your spirit would fall in power, just as you did in that first century church. Lord, would you do in us what you did in them? 
May you empower us, fill us, send us, um, encourage us, rebuke us, do all those good works of you from your spirit. For apart from you, we can do nothing. So now may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my lips be pleasing and honoring to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This week I was exposed to a, a new author. I'm really enjoying it. His name is Mark Sayers. He wrote a book called The Road Trip That Changed the World. And in this book, he is, he is arguing or he's actually just kind of tracing the cultural trends uh, both at large in the West but specifically in the church and how did we get to the place in the church that we are today. And uh, in it, in one of the chapters, he talks about how we are now in a world that what he would call is super flat, meaning there's everything's imminent and nothing's no longer transcendent. So uh, when everything's imminent, uh, that, has, that has implications for our worldview and for our worship and all sorts of things where there's no more vertical, no more transcendence, no more something bigger than our lives out there. We live in a super flat world. And here's what he has to say about the implications of living in a super flat culture. He says, in a super flat culture where nothing matters, we escape into obsessions and hobbies, interests that bear little ultimate consequence. In a commodified culture, we move and shift around meaning, giving weight to things that do not deserve mountains of our time and attention. The 21st century will be a century marked by conspicuous consumption, but also a flagrant misuse of time. With religion off the agenda, our culture finds new avenues of devotion and distraction. Instead of moving us toward relationship and people, the imminent superflat culture pushes us toward things. Millions of hours in the 21st century will be spent working through DVD TV series, scanning social network sites, gorging on celebrity gossip, downloading music, flipping through home magazines, and playing computer games. Things will pre- take precedence over people. Meaningless af- activities will overtake our lives. There is nothing wrong with interest and hobbies in their right place, but the 21st century culture will gorge itself on such activities. The real issues of human existence that have sat front and center on human consciousness have, in a super flat, imminent world, been shoved aside. They are too heavy to be carried on the road. Instead, we buzz across the surface of life, never venturing below the surface. Says this is the culture we're in. When everything's imminent and nothing's transcended, we have to uh, constantly seek saviors and gods to free us from our boredom. And so we fill our time and our lives with meaningless things that ultimately bear no eternal weight or significance. And what we're saying in this series is that, that the gospel invitation brings a, a colossal weight, a colossal weight of glory, as C.S. Lewis would call it, to our lives, something that is far bigger than us, that far transcends us. And, and we take our little tiny story and we uh, put it into the grand story of God, and all of a sudden, everything becomes transcendent, everything matters, your marriage matters, your work matters, your, your money matters, and, and the mission of God matters. The mission is bigger than any of us can imagine or fathom, but it's a mission that will matter forever and ever. So a gospel-saved people and a gospel-shaped people are naturally a gospel-sent people. And here in the church, how did we get to this point? Well, 
Well, someone has said that uh, when the church started in Jerusalem, it was a family. When it moved to Antioch, it became a movement. When it, when it moved to Europe, it became a culture. When it moved to America, it became a business. In this book, he's also tracing out how after World War II, really right at the end of World War II, America as a whole shifted to an entertainment culture. And the church at that time, uh, they said, well, we've got to keep up with the world. If, if people are going to come in, continue to come into our churches, if we're going to be relevant, we've got to shift with the world. And so the church has become an entertainment place. And, and so uh, we, we do whatever we can to compete with the world on entertainment. And eventually the world says, well, we can get better entertainment out there. And in an, in an attempt, and in, in a great irony of church history, in an attempt to be relevant, we lost our relevance. All the while, the most relevant news the world has ever heard, the gospel goes deaf to the world. We, 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 we've got to stop trying to be cool the gospel is not cool. We can't make it cool enough. Like, seriously, have you ever just tried to talk to a friend that knows nothing of the gospel and just say, hey, so we believe uh, that God became a man and, and they killed him and he came back to life. And they're like, are you serious? Really? We're like, yeah, and we believe that you have to believe that. And uh, when you do, you get eternal life. You're like, are you crazy? Well, so that, that pressure is to be like, well, no, we're, we're cool. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Oh, good, because I have wonderful plans for my life. If I could just get God to come alongside and help me where I stumble a little bit, that'd be awesome. And so we package God as a, a self-help, little God, little gospel, a little Jesus, little mission. And by and large in the church, we're okay with that because that doesn't challenge our cultural idols of safety, comfort, security, stuff. The gospel is colossal. The gospel challenges everything. The gospel calls us to eternal things. And so we want to be a, a gospel-centered, gospel-moved, gospel-shaped people, putting aside little gospels. The gospel compels us to live for someone and something far greater than ourselves. That someone is Jesus. That something is the mission he's given his church and so we believe that gospel saturation for every neighborhood and every nation is going to happen. And so I want to just this, this be an introduction to missions for some of you. Maybe you haven't heard a missions message, but I, I just want to put out there God's heart for the nations real quickly. And I want to say three things, and I'll spend the most time on the first thing, that, that when we think about missions, God's global purposes for every tribe, tongue, and nation, there's three things that we need to know first off, as, especially as a church plan, but for every Christian. The, the first thing is that his promise is sure. I'll spend the most time on that. And not, I'll have a lot of verses. We'll kind of do a Bible study today. I'll be like a Baptist pastor on espresso. I'll be all over the Bible today. Um, I said that one time and people at a church I was preaching at, and people said, you know, that's just divisive. So uh, I, didn't, I didn't mean it like that. Uh, but uh, we'll be looking at a lot of verses to see that God's promise is sure. And, and if we don't start there, then, then we head out of these walls with, with the wrong idea of what the mission is. 
And then we'll look at his plan. His plan is spectacular. His promise is sure. His plan is spectacular. And then we'll say, well, how are we going to accomplish it? Well, his power is sufficient. It's going to happen. And so let's, let's look at that, this together. His promise is sure. Now, I'm going to have a few texts up here. I'm going to argue today that from Genesis to Revelation, uh, God has global purposes in mind. God cares about your life. He cares about the minutia of your life. He, Jesus says he cares about the number of hairs on your head. He knows all that, and yet and still, he also, because he's God and knows all things and is omnipresent and omniscient, om, all the omnis, he also cares about the big picture. And from the very beginning, in fact, before creation, he's had a plan to rescue and redeem the nations. And so in Genesis, when God goes to Abraham, and he takes Abram out of a pagan culture. Well, it was all pagan at that point, but he takes Abram and he says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to bless you, not because of anything good in you, Abram, but because of all that is good in me. And he says this to Abram in Genesis 22:18. He says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All the nations. It continues to go on. He continues to give promises in Genesis and, and Exodus and Leviticus. But I'm going to jump to Psalm 22, verse 27. And Psalm 22 is really a, a, a prophecy of Jesus' uh, uh, crucifixion. In fact, uh, if you read the whole psalm, uh, you can see how this is a, a, a picture of how Jesus is going to be crucified. In fact, uh, uh, critics and, and liberal theologians have said, oh, Christians but just put Psalm 22 in after the fact, and that was all well and fine until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date 100 years before Jesus ever came, and guess what? Psalm 22 was right there word for word, and so we didn't put it in there, but that's another sermon for another day. Psalm 20. After he talked about Jesus' uh, crucifixion hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified, he concludes it like this. He says, And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before thee. Jesus' uh, death and, and crucifixion was about rescuing and redeeming the nations. Psalm 46. You, maybe some of you know the first part of the verse is be still and know that I am God. I mean, this is a good verse, right? You got to, maybe you have a Christian t-shirt that says that. You got your coffee mug. Be still and know that I am God. And then that, that's good, right? Just, I just need to be still and know that I'm God. Man, I'm stressed out at work, man. I just need to be still and know that he is God. That's true, but that's not the context of the verse or the whole psalm, by the way. And so we want to be, uh, we want to be true to the Bible. And so the rest of the, the verse goes like this. Be still, know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. You got that? So that's how it concludes. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. His promise is sure. He's going to make this happen. And, and, and just as a side note, so any of us in this room can be like, you know what, that's for the extra credit Christians, that's for the superheroes, that's for, you know, everyone that's just a little bit too zealous about their faith. Uh, well, good news for you today, it's going to happen with or without you. God is not saying, oh, if Mark would just preach a good sermon, maybe I could get some people to China this afternoon. Uh, no, that's not God's, God's not fretting, he's not wondering, man, if these people at Redemption Parker would just get on board, I could really 
do some things. No, God is saying, I am God. I will accomplish my purposes. This is going to happen. And by the way, we're, I don't want to get ahead of myself. You're going to be invited on that. But that's an amazing thing, not a burdensome thing. So where am I at? I did Psalm 46. Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations thou hast made has, shall come and bow down before thee. O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. It's going to happen. Isaiah prophesies about this quite often. Uh, I love Isaiah uh, 6. You don't have to put it up there just yet because I don't have this on the screen. This is bonus material today. Uh, In Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets a vision of God. And it says, in the year King Uzziah died, he went into the temple and he saw the Lord seated on his throne. I mean, and he was like you and I would be. He was undone. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. I've seen the Lord and I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And he says, I'm going to die in this moment. And God sends one of the, the seraphim. And they're singing, by the way. Remember the song they're singing? It's a great song. They're just going back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they just keep this on. And then Isaiah's like, uh, 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 uh. and the, the angel comes down and he takes a, 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 a hot coal and he takes it and he puts it on Isaiah's lips and, and he consecrates him and sanctifies him in that moment. And then God in his, in the triune nature has this conversation and he says, uh, who shall we send? Who are we going to go? And, and Isaiah is over there with burnt lips and he's like, uh, uh, send me, Lord. Send me. I'll, I'll go. I, I thought I was going to be dead about three seconds ago and I'm still alive. And so wherever you want me to go, send me, Lord. And so Isaiah understands God's purposes for the nations. Isaiah 66 Verse 19, it says, And to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, they will proclaim my glory among the nations. It's going to happen. We roll into the New Testament, and and this theme continues. God's praise and renown will fill the whole earth. In Matthew 24, verse 14, George Ladd uh, called Matthew 24, 14, the most, well, he, he put it this way, the most important words from the word of God for the people of God today. The most important words from the word of God for the people of God today. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus is teaching about how the end is going to happen, how the whole culmination of history is going to find its fulfillment. And Jesus says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the gospel will go to all nations, and then the end will come. Here's what George Ladd said about that. He said, well, let me get to that in just a second. When we say nations, we don't mean the gospel will go to China, and then it'll go to Peru, and then, you know, these kind of social... Uh, political boundary stage. The word there is ethne, all ethno-linguistic people groups. And so some nations like China have thousands of ethnic linguistic people groups. By our best estimates, there's about 17,000 
unique people groups across the globe. So we asked the question, 2017, how, how are we doing? How are we doing as a church fulfilling the mission God has given the church 2,000 years later? Well, if there's about 17,000 by our best estimates, uh, we're doing all right. We, we've, we've gotten to about 10,000 of them, which simply means that 10,000 of those people groups have now access to the gospel. They have a church in their midst. They have Christians in their midst. They have uh, the Bible in their language, but that still leaves about six to 7,000 people groups that have no access to the gospel. They will be born, they will grow up, they will grow old, they will die, and they will have never met a Christian. They will have never gone to a church. They will have never read about the love of God for them in Christ Jesus. And so the mission is unfinished. And that's why Jesus hasn't come back. You'd say, well, couldn't Jesus come back right now? Uh, Possibly, but for whatever reason, he hasn't. And part of it has to do with that verse. Here's what George Ladd says about it. He says, God alone knows the definition of terms. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are, but I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned. Therefore, the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining our terms, the terms. Our responsibility is to complete the task. So long as Christ has not returned, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete the mission. This is going to happen. And, and I love, uh, I don't have this, actually, I, I, I just have the reference, Acts chapter 9. You can pull it up there, Zoe. The promise is sure. God is going to accomplish his purposes. In Acts chapter 9, we pick up the story with a young a guy named Saul of Tarsus. In Acts chapter 6, on the scene comes Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit and evidencing great works through his busboy job that he had, by the way. And it so got the attention of the religious authorities that they uh, raised up against him. And in Acts chapter 7, the first Christian martyr spills his blood for the cause of Christ. And standing on the side approving is this guy named Saul. And Saul was so zealous for what he thought God was, he thought they were doing God a service by putting, putting um, what's his name? <laughs> Stephen to death, Sorry. And so this continues to go on. And in Acts chapter 9, when we catch up with Saul again, he's now, uh, the scripture says, ravaging the church. He's going around uh, gathering up all the people that call themselves Christians. He's putting them in prison. They're putting them to death. People are losing their lives. And now he's he's going to the high priest and he's asking for permission to to go out beyond his jurisdiction, to go to Damascus and get even more Christians. This brother is He enjoyed the death of the saints. His hatred for Christians was palpable, and he thought he was doing God a service. But God's promise is sure, and he's going to accomplish his purposes. In verse um, 3, I'll just pick it up in Acts chapter 9. Now there, as he went on the way, approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to him, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city. You will be told what you are to do. I love that. I mean, so often we think God is just kind of, uh, uh, kind of just begging for our, just please pay attention to me. I, I'm just really, I wish you would love me. I loved you so much. No, Jesus comes, knocks Saul off his horse. He's like, I'll tell you what you're going to do, Saul. And then Saul's blind for three days, and uh, as he's just kind of, he's, it says he's not eating or drinking, then, then Jesus appears to a, a Christian named Ananias, and, and he says basically to Ananias, okay, guess what, I'm going to send you, you're going to go pray for Saul, he's, he's going he's to become a believer. And Ananias is like, and maybe we do this sometime, uh, God, I need to give you some information. <laughs> do you ever do that, like in our prayers? God... I know, I know what you're saying, but you, this brother is sick. I mean, he's killing everybody, God. So can we re- rethink that? And then I love what, what, what Jesus says to him. Just go. <laughs> there's no like, oh, Ananias, you misunderstood. I wasn't trying to have a, a debate or conversation. I was telling you what to do. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And he goes, and Saul is converted, and Saul becomes the greatest missionary apart from Jesus who left heaven and glory to come to our planet and live among us. Saul became the greatest missionary that world has ever seen. And I think the reason he did that was to show you and me God is going to accomplish his purposes. And he's going to use people to do that. But, but if, if he can use someone like Saul, certainly he can use anyone in this room. That's the whole point of Saul's conversion and his ministry to the nations. God is saying, there is no obstacle in my way. The promise is sure. The same Saul who would go on and, and joyfully spill his blood, joyfully go to prison, joyfully uh, give his life for the cause of Christ, would write to the church at Ephesus that uh, th- these words in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This plan to rescue and redeem the nations, this plan has been in place before the world was ever in place that we should be holy and blameless before him. Revelation chapter 5, I'll, I'll just turn there. So this, that's all past tense, and now we go to future tense. How is this thing eventually going to all wrap up? In Revelation chapter 5, and 7 for that matter, but in 5, it, we'll just pick that up here. Um, it's, a, it's, it's in the future. It's talking about Jesus as the, the lamb who was slain and worthy to open the scrolls, worthy to open the path to heaven. And the angels are singing a song in, in, in chapter 5, verse 9. It says, and they sang a new song. It's going to be an amazing song, by the way. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are going to gather before the throne 
and worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's going to happen. The promise is sure. Now, now with each one of these, there are some implications for us, okay? For Redemption Parker, there's implications. And the implication for us in this promise is sure is this, that the absolute sovereignty of God fuels death-defying missions. Again, in a super flat world, this doesn't work. But when we look up to God and we see he is transcendent, he is holy, he is eternal, then we can say, take our little lives in the few years that we have and use them for your eternal purposes. And because you're sovereign, we know it's going to happen. We know you're going to make this happen. So we trust you in that. And we can go anywhere. And we know that whatever happens to us, it happens under the purview of a sovereign God who works all things for our good and his glory. So there is not one martyr on the planet that God was like, man, I wish we had him around more. In fact, Revelation 6 will say that there's a set number of martyrs. And when that set number gets filled up and the, nation, and the gospel goes to all nations, the end will come. So when our brothers and sisters last year knelt down on the seaside of the Mediterranean Sea, and ISIS beheaded each one of them. God was there. And God was welcoming the brothers into his presence. And he says, well done, good and faithful servants. And their blood was spilled, but their testimony goes forth. It makes me think of uh, a woman that works for our organization, Pioneers International, when we were moving from Japan uh, and feeling God calling us to go to the Czech Republic, the most atheist uh, country in the world with one half of 1% of evangelical followers there, uh, we, were, uh, we were involved with uh, just meeting as many missionaries and mission agencies as we could. And so uh, we were staying with the Pioneers missionaries and they were telling us about their vision and their values and and the last day they said, hey, uh, we have a, a DVD that our organization has put just to kind of show you our ethos. Would you like to see it? And we said, yeah, absolutely, we'd like to see it. And they said, well, uh, we'll show this to you, but we want you to know that there's a woman in this video, uh, and you need to know her story before you see the videos. I go, okay. Well, she serves in Afghanistan, uh, in Kabul. She serves at a, uh, at a hospital there. And um, you may have heard that, uh, you know, obviously, that's a, a dangerous, dangerous place. And in 2010, as they were uh, working at the medical clinic in Kabul, uh, in walked a man who uh, had a bandage on his arm, but it was just to conceal his gun. And, and he unloaded on the Christian workers in that place, and the three of them died, and the woman that you'll see, she died. When you, when you say that, you're like, wow. And, and there's two quotes that came out of that that just stuck with me. One from the guy that killed her, and one from her. He said this after he got arrested for killing the, the Christian workers in Kabul. He said, if these people kept doing what they were doing, people all over this country would believe in Jesus. You're right. Amen. And then her words, just very shortly before this event happened, see, security was getting tense. Uh, the, our organization was saying, we need to pull you out of there. It's not safe for our workers to be there anymore. And she said this. She said, whatever you do, don't pull me out of this country. You will kill me if you pull me out. Now, how does, this, how does the person get to that? 
only believing that the promise is sure, that God is sovereign, do you have any hope that that life is not all about uh, expanding on the horizontal but living for the vertical. Only with that perspective do we have the opportunity, will we be able to go. And so that brings us to the second thing. God's plan for the redemption of the nations is spectacular. I'm going to go to the most famous verse in, in, on, on the mission as possible, Matthew 28. We know it as the Great Commission. You, many of you probably already know it. Maybe you haven't memorized. Uh, the problem with having a verse so familiar in the church today is that it's, it can become just that. But I want you to hear real words from the Son of God to you and to me this morning. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It's the Great Commission. This is after Jesus has been, uh, has lived a life you and I could never live, has paid the price you and I could never pay, has been killed, murdered, put in the tomb, and, and resurrected. He appears to his disciples over a period of 40 days, and on the last time he gathers him, he says this. Again, real words from the lips of Christ to you and to me. Jesus said, Jesus came to them and said, All authority and on heaven and on earth has been given to me. You're like, yeah, yeah it has. Uh, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are God from eternity past and you are God for eternity future. Yes, all authority is yours, Jesus. Absolutely, you conquered death and the grave. You paid for our sins. Yes, all authority has been given to Jesus. And then what does Jesus say? He says, therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all ethne, all ethnic linguistic people groups, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You say, okay, so Jesus, uh, you were talking about yourself. All authority is here. Now you're talking about me. I, I don't get it. And it's like, no, because I have all authority, here's my plan. You're my plan. You're like, <laughs> excuse me? I'm the plan? Yeah, you're my plan. And there's no plan B. The rescue and redemption of the nations will always go with the beautiful feet of those that take the gospel and the beautiful lips of those that say the gospel. Now, I work with a mission that works all over the world, and we're seeing some amazing things happening out of Muslim background countries, um, people getting dreams and visions. But in every case, all those dreams and visions that God is sending people are only preparatory, meaning God, God still sends people behind those dreams and visions to share the gospel. So I think of someone, uh, Nadia. The, Nadia and her husband are now uh, missionaries in uh, Micronesia, but they came to the harbor. She, she grew up in Tanzania. She grew up in a, a devout Muslim home, a devout, um, like, only Muslim, all Muslim, all the time. She served and worked in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but when she went to school in England, she began to get dreams. And they were very disturbing dreams. They were dreams about Jesus. Now, they believe Jesus is a prophet, but not Messiah, not Savior, not God, certainly. And in these dreams, uh, they were dreams about, her, about Jesus being God. And uh, she began to pray to Allah, take these dreams away from me. Satan's sending me these dreams. And she continued to get the dreams. She went to her British friends, and she said, here's these dreams I'm getting. And they're like, hey. 
That sounds familiar. And they would turn to a passage in the Gospels and they'd say, it sounds like this. She's like, that's exactly what happened in my dream. God was sending her dreams of the Gospel, but it took Christians to say, now this is how it applies. And she became a believer. Her family said, we disown you. If you come back here, we're going to kill you. Mike and Nadia have gone back there um, and said, no, we're coming back here. You're our family. And they didn't kill her. So, um, but that's just kind of the risk. It takes people. We are plan A, and there is no plan B. In the book of Acts, uh, this scene is played out a little bit uh, in the same way Luke puts it this way. As Jesus gathers the disciples, the second half of verse 8, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, because that's where they were at, and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's going to happen, but you are the plan. There is no plan B. Romans chapter 10, Paul puts it this way, quoting Isaiah. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise God. Amen. That's how they get saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the the feet of those who preach good news. So we have to take the gospel. We are the plan. Say, well, what about, okay, so what about the innocent person in the middle of Africa who has never heard the gospel? And I say, well, the innocent person in the middle of Africa who's never heard the gospel, they obviously, since they're innocent, they they go to heaven. The problem is that person doesn't exist. Romans 1, 2, and 3 tells us very clearly that all people on all the planet have enough revelation to have enough to just to see the glory of God and reject it. And every person on the planet has rejected God. But not everybody has enough revelation to see that Jesus Christ has come and rescued and redeemed them. And so we are the plan. And so there's some implications to this one as well. God will use his redeemed people as instruments to redeem his people. That's the plan. There is no plan B. We'll get, I'll unpack that a little bit more here in a minute. But let me get to the third and last point here. God's power is sufficient. How are we going to be able to do this? God's Promise is sure. God's plan is spectacular. You're the plan. So again, you can say, well, I don't want anything to do with that. Uh, That's not for me. Uh, Or maybe you're just like, man, I hope it's for me. I hope. So I I can't wait. Where is God going to send me? Well, first and foremost, he's going to send you to your house. No one's leaving here today headed out to to China or unless Mike Falkenstein's in here because he, he does have a ministry in China. But no, no one's doing that. All of us will go home. All of us will get in our cars and go into our neighborhoods and get up tomorrow and go to our jobs. And yet and still, God has his plan and purposes working out. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look at God's power to do this. God's power is sufficient. After Jesus was resurrected, John also talks about Uh, what we might call his great commission, but again has a different perspective on it. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 20. 
After Jesus is resurrected, he, he appears to his disciples. Remember, they're locked away in an upper room. They're terrified. They think what happened to their Messiah, to their rabbi, is going to happen to them. They've got no strength. They've certainly got no power. And then Jesus, resurrected, comes into their locked door room and begins to uh, unpack some things for them and for us. John chapter 20 let me see if I can find it. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so this is Easter Sunday that night, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Again, there's the mission. There's the plan. God sent me, and I'm sending you. But again, these are terrified men locked away in an upper room. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. See, what John is showing and has showed throughout his whole gospel is everything Jesus did, he did by the power of the Spirit. And so he was born by the power of the Spirit. He lived by the power of the Spirit. He taught by the power of the Spirit. And now Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out just like I sent, just like God the Father sent me out. And in John chapter 14, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to send you the Spirit. And good news for you, when the Spirit comes, it'll be better than me being with you. Jesus beside us is not as good as Jesus inside us, is what he's saying. But none of us really believe that, right? Like if Jesus was here, like that'd be the, the, the mega church, right? Like that's where everyone would be going. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's better that I'm leaving. Do you believe that? It's better that I'm leaving because if you trust in me, I will send you the Spirit. The Spirit will fill your life and you will do greater works than I have done. Do we believe that? Do we believe that it's better that Jesus isn't here preaching to you today? like, no, I think I'd take Jesus. (laughs) But Jesus is saying, if you're trusted in Christ, you have the Spirit. So now Jesus is multiplied. You don't go to a place where Jesus is. Jesus is wherever the church is. And and so we go. We go. The, the, The power is sufficient. Do we believe that, though? Do we believe this Like, imagine a culture, imagine a scene where uh, an island untouched by any other civilization, uh, a crate of Bibles arrive on the shore, and by God's miraculous grace, they're able to learn and read. And so for generations, they just read, and they read Genesis, and they say, oh, this is how God created the world, and they they see, oh, sin entered into the world. That's really bad. That's affected everything. And and then they say, well, well, God has a plan, and, and prophets come, and God chooses Abraham, and he establishes his kingdom, uh, but they continued to turn their back on God. Then they get to the Gospels, and they see, oh, God stepped out of heaven and entered into our world, and he lived among us, and uh, that was amazing. Uh, And then they get to the book of Acts. They said, then he sent the Spirit And the Spirit, man, Acts chapter 2, rocks the house, right? Like just does amazing things. And and the people are living like they believe it. 
And then they read the epistles and say, well, there's some problems, but this is how they're working out. And then they read Revelation. This is how it's going to end. This is an amazing book. This is an amazing God. And then over the horizon, a ship comes on the horizon and it says, hey, we want to take you to a place called America. Like, really, America? Tell us about that. Yeah, America's great. There's lots of people there, millions of people. Millions of people in America. Are any of them Christian? Yeah, millions of them. In America, come with us. Are you, are you serious? We gotta go. We gotta go be with the church in America. Yeah, come on. We, we've read about the church. Yeah, great. Come on, just come on. Just we're gonna fly. We're gonna get a plane. You're gonna land in DIA. We're gonna take you out to Parker, Colorado, and they're driving. They're like, okay, uh, just take us to the church. They're like, well, there's there's like hundreds of churches. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? There's one church. Well, well, they meet in all these different places. Oh, okay. Well, just take us there. Well, they only meet Sunday morning. <laughs> okay. Well, they have a gospel community. Okay. Well, okay, whatever. Let, whenever the church comes together, we just want to be a part of that because we read what that's like. And, and so what, what if they, they just came in here one Sunday morning? They're like, we're here. All right. What are you guys doing? Why is everyone sitting in rows? Is this church? They'd be like, we're confused because... Jesus said that the believers have the spirit and the spirit have, have a mission and they have power and, and they're, they're about the mission. So it's like Francis Chan says, no one reads the book of Acts and says, hey, that's just like my church. But oh, that it would be. That's what our prayer is. We have power. Jesus gave us the power. The second half of, uh, the first half of chapter, Acts chapter one, verse eight, he says, you will receive power when the spirit comes on you. And the Spirit, in Jesus' teaching on John, and the Spirit we see is always tied with the advancement of the gospel to the nations. So we do a lot of goofy things in the church in the West with the Spirit, a lot of things that are not connected with this. But, but what Jesus says, when you, you will receive power and you will be witnesses. So uh, some of you say, well, I don't have any power. Let me ask you, are, are you doing anything in your life that requires faith? Are you doing anything that would require the Spirit to show up? Because the Spirit doesn't really need to help us live the American dream. We can do that on our own, but the Spirit definitely needs our help when we step out in faith and we cross the street or a neighborhood or a nation. Spirit's power is tied with the Spirit's mission to go, and we want to experience the power of the Spirit Acts chapter 2, the Spirit unleashes. Uh, tongues of fire come down. They... they, they just transforms them. It isn't until, though, till persecution comes where it spreads to Judea and Samaria and begins to head to the ends of the earth. The implication for this one is that the Holy Spirit will fill us and empower us as we go. So God's promise is sure it's going to happen. His plan is you and his power is your spirit. It's an amazing thing. Now, how do we deal with this, though? Say, well, I'm just, you know, that's great, Mark. I'm just an ordinary person. Let me just say this. I, I, work, I, I am a missionary. I work with hundreds of missionaries. And every one of them, and I mean this in the best possible way, every one of them are, are, are extraordinarily ordinary people. I have not yet seen a missionary with a cape on. It's like, I'm here to save the world. No. They have problems. Uh, they have issues. They have sin. They have insecurities. They have fears. And yet, 
through these vessels that are weak, God is using them. And all their fumbling and all their stumbling along. In, in two weeks, we will travel uh, at, on Easter evening to Budapest uh, to uh, host 300 missionaries from across Europe to help encourage and equip them. And we're doing some things along those lines. One of the things I've been doing, I wish you could come sit with me during my day job and, and just see. I'm trying to gather all their praises and prayer requests and put it in, a, in an app so that we can be praying for each other. But I've got to read through all of them. And, and it's just amazing. Ordinary people being used by God. The second thing is that the vast majority of us are not called to go. Some of you are like, Phew, that's good. No, we, we need a strong base camp. But that, I'm praying that God would use Redemption Parker to be a, a, a fertile soil so that we can all, in some way, shape, or form, wrap our lives around God's global purposes. And some of you, that just means, you know what? I'm going to go make a ton of money and use it for God's global purposes. Others say, you know what, I'm going to give my knees to this mission. I'm going to be just the prayer warrior. Whoever God raises up in our midst, I'm going to cover, make sure they're covered in prayer. John Piper says there's only three kinds of Christian when it comes to a message like this. There's goers, there's senders, and there's disobedient. So we all fall into one of those categories. And, and, and uh, it is not greater to be a goer than a sender. We need both. So, so how do we engage this? God uses ordinary people. So what do we do now? Like everyone going out this door is going to China and everyone, no, that's not true. Again, you're going to go into your neighborhoods, into your day, and God's going to say, I'll send my spirit with you. By the way, the, the, the great commission there, Jesus, I, I didn't emphasize it, but he puts a little PS on the invitation and surely I'll be with you always. I mean, don't we so desperately want to experience God's presence and power? Don't we want to experience Jesus' presence? And if you call yourself a Christian, you do. And again, it's tied to us stepping out in faith. And so what do we do? We, we repent, we pray, and we engage. We repent from living flat lives. So far as we've given our time and our talent, our treasure, our, our, our emotions, our energy, and our worship to things that ultimately have no significance, we just say, Lord, help me to just repent of that and, and realign with you on this. And then we pray. We pray, Lord. We, we say, God, we, we know this is going to happen. Lord, would you use our church? Would you use us? Would you use our culture to, to, to be a part of the nations? And then we engage. I'll put on our Facebook wall some things, how you can engage. Like, say, well, I'm just a, I'm just a homeschool mom. Like, no, that's an amazing strategic thing for the kingdom and for the nations, okay? And so uh, you gather your children together and you pray. And so my wife will, will go through a book called Operation World. It's a prayer guide for the nations. I'll put it online. But it's just basically each day they look at a country and they, they learn how to pray. My daughter this morning said, oh, man, that book is so depressing. <laughs> I said... Why, why do you say that? She said, well, every country has so many problems. I'm like, yeah, but God invites us to pray and engage and, and be world Christians. So don't worry. Don't, 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 that's not the greatest commercial for that book, but um, it gives us an opportunity to pray. Like your life can be used for something of eternal weight and significance. So we engage. My question for us is what will our legacy be in at Redemption Parker, 60 to 70 years from now, the vast majority of us, except for maybe the youngest ones, will be gone. Our chance, our shot will be over. 
The question in that moment is, will we have given our lives to eternal things or to flat things? I'm praying that God would raise up church planners to plant churches across the city and across this nation and in Singapore and in Sao Paulo, Brazil and in Moscow and in Prague and in uh, you name it. I'm praying that God would raise up a mission's heart. And we just join him on what he's already doing. A day is coming where there will gather before the throne people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We'll be surrounded with the Abu Sugai people of Malaysia who are currently 0% Christian, 100% Islamic. We'll be surrounded by the Abaza of Ukraine, 0% Christian. The Akarari of India, 100% Hindu currently. The Adi of Bhutan, 0% Christian, 100% Buddhist and so on and so forth, through that 17,000 people group list. See, the, the Revelation tells us that there is a party that we're all going to. It's a party that's multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic from people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The, the Revelation tells us that the multitudes will rise up out of Parker and the multitudes will rise up out of Shanghai and the multitudes will rise up out of Indonesia and out of, out of Mexico and out of Canada and they will all gather before the throne and they will sing songs to God and, and right now in this little short moment we get to be a part of bringing people and Inviting people to the party in that moment, we'll want to say, hey, look, there's some of the Obai people. You know, we, we invested in those people. We sent missionaries to those people. We prayed for those people. And they're here. They're here at the party. And they're like, yeah, thank you. We're here at the party because you came and told us. Thank you so much. I mean, in the fall, we'll, I'll have a, a fantasy football team, and that'll be great. But what if we had a fantasy unreached people group team where we're just like, let's just pray about these people. Let's raise up these people. Let's give our lives to these people. In 60 to 70 years from now, all of us will have hoped that that's what we did with our lives. To that end, let me just pray for us. We, when we go to that party, we, we are going to want to make sure we played our part well. And then I'll turn our attention to this communion table. God, we thank you for your word to us. God, I thank you that your promise is sure. You're going to accomplish. You are sovereign. We know that the scene in Revelation isn't a hope for you, but it will happen. I thank you that your plan is spectacular. God, you would use broken vessels like us, rescue, redeem us, and then send us out to be your witnesses. What an amazing thing. Lord, I pray that this church would be a church that is connected with the heartbeat of Main Street in Parker and in Shanghai as well. Lord, wherever you would have us be a part of, Lord, that we would be a church that cares about our neighbors and the nations. God, would you stir that ethos in us now? God, we we look forward to seeing what this all looks like 60 to 70 years from now when Most of us aren't here. We want to see that your power was sufficient in our lives to be about your kingdom and your glory and not about our little stories. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.